I've not really lived in a neighborhood that has a, a formally organized neighborhood watch program. Although plenty of places I've lived have an informal network of neighbors watching out for each other. In a few cases, the neighborhood network was an informal network of care, paying attention to the needs of someone who was elderly, for example, and pitching in to shovel snow from their driveway or make sure the garbage cans got taken back in. But I've also been places where the network was more of a, a network of warning, of suspicion, a way to tag the outsider as different from the insider, an effort to distinguish the neighbor from the stranger. For example, some time back I joined, joined a Facebook group that concerns itself with the neighbors, neighborhoods around the lakes where my lake cottage is located. At its best, the group provides a forum for discussion, of, discussion about upcoming neighborhood events. Where are the fireworks this 4th of July? Or when is the next round of spraying for aquatic weeds? As well as providing a place to post things lost and found like a dry box that fell off a jet ski or a swim platform that's floating across the lake. It's also a place where people post real estate listings or rentals and requests or recommendations for services like plumbing or tree trimming or pier installation. But along with all of that, there are from time to time posts about suspicious activities often accompanied by still pictures from video surveillance cameras, pictures of a person or persons outside a house at 1 or 1.30 in the morning, along with information about items that have recently been stolen, gas cans, tools, trailers, even vehicles. The posts generally go in one of two directions. Either, has anybody seen my stuff? Or, watch out for these crooks. One post I saw recently showed pictures of two different men, one standing at a gate and the other in a driveway. One had a drink of some sort in his hand. The other had what looked like a phone in one hand. Neither was wearing a hat or attempting to conceal their identity in any way. In fact, the older fellow who was wearing a tank top and shorts had no shoes on his feet. And in the video still shot, he looked much more like someone who was coming outside to check on something suspicious than like a suspicious character himself. But in the comments section, the two men might as well have already been convicted of terrible crimes. One commentator went so far as to say, quote, we shoot first and ask questions later for thieves and then name the specific lake where she lives. Another said, if you're going to break into my house, you better be right with Jesus, which I also took to be a threat of violence. Such rhetoric disturbs me. Not that I don't think that there are people out there who are looking to steal or deface property, who would take advantage of an unlocked door or someone's forgetfulness in leaving tools unattended, but the speed at which people jump to conclusions, as well as the disproportionate reaction is worrisome. And yet the concept of neighborhood watch is based on the idea that people who live in the same neighborhood should band together 
to watch out for outsiders, to be the eyes and ears of law enforcement, and that means keeping an eye out for anyone who is expected to be a threat, who is expected to be up to no good, who is deserving of suspicion and accusation. But here's my question. Why only watch with suspicion? Or only watch for danger? Or only watch through the lens of mistrust? Why not watch for an opportunity to help? Why not watch for ways to build up? Why not watch with open-heartedness? And then, once we actually see the stranger as a person, perhaps not just as a threat, but in the spirit of Scripture, as someone in need of our mercy at the side of the road, or someone who might need the fallen grapes from our vineyard, or the grain at the edge of our fields, to then take our seeing a step further and move toward doing so that something shifts in such a way that we not only watch with suspicion, but that we might do something to help, to minister, to share, to build a relationship, to offer mercy, to give care, to take steps toward transformation. Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or in prison and visited you? When I went to visit Raymond in Oklahoma during my sabbatical, it was the second time I visited him at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary where he is imprisoned on death row. And I was less nervous this time because it wasn't all new to me like it was last time. I understood the ritual of getting into the prison. I expected the delays and the claims that they, don't, that they didn't know whether I would be allowed to visit even though I had all my paperwork in order. I knew what to expect in terms of the actual visiting space, the kind of table we would sit across from each other, that Raymond would be shackled throughout our visit. I even knew about the vending machines, about the food I could provide him. You see, visitors are allowed to bring $20 in quarters in a Ziploc bag. It's the only thing you're allowed to take with you into the prison. But with that $20, you can buy food from the vending machines and eat. Chips, candy, hamburgers, soda, all things that Raymond doesn't usually get. This time he wanted a hamburger and a piece of pie, I think, and a Dr. Pepper. I carried my bag of quarters over to the vending machine and bought the things he wanted, pushing the money in a quarter at a time. Success, except once I had gotten everything I had selected from the vending machine and after I put the burger in the microwave they have there in the visiting room following the instructions on the package and then carried it all over to our table, I realized I had bought Diet Dr. Pepper instead of regular. It's a horrible mistake. especially when someone's been waiting months and months for regular Dr. Pepper. Although Raymond only smiled and said he'd be glad for a regular Dr. Pepper when I went to the vending machine the second time. 
I didn't buy myself anything to eat from the vending machine, but I immensely enjoyed watching Raymond eat what I bought for him. It brought me as much delight as if I was eating my own favorite foods. I tasted his delight, in fact. I didn't just give him food, as the scriptural imperative says, but I tasted his delight. And I think that's what it should mean to feed the hungry. Not that I did my duty and gave him a bowl of soup or a peanut butter sandwich and I should feel righteous about that or pat myself about, on the back about that, but that I gave him a microwaved hamburger and a Dr. Pepper, and with every satisfied bite he took, every happy sip he took, we were communing. Christ was there with us. Later on, when the room filled up with other inmates and their visitors, Raymond's cellmate, Sean, was sitting not far from us visiting with his mother, and she got up to buy him some things from the vending machine. She's an elderly woman, and she made her way very carefully, very slowly to the machines and started putting quarters into the machine. And shortly after she started putting quarters into the machine, it started spitting out dollar bills at her. It was like she had won the slots in Vegas the machine spitting money out at her. And it was the most bizarre thing. And then it was hilarious. And suddenly everyone in the room started laughing. The other inmates, their visitors, the guard, and the air in the room changed. Just for a moment, it changed. All tension went away. All differences went away. All stress, all guilt, all judgment. In that moment of shared, genuine laughter, it all changed. Everyone was humanized. Everyone was connected. And for that brief moment, everyone felt free. You could feel it. And I wonder whether that's what it means to visit the prisoner. Not just to sit at the table and ignore or try to ignore the shackles, but to share in the best part of our humanity, even in the worst kind of place. To be able to share the delight of not just food, but laughter. And Lord... When was it that we saw you a stranger and befriended you, or sick and visited you? When my son and I took our trip to New Orleans in early May to spend time with David Young and his capstone ministries in the Lower Ninth Ward, one day we were working in a storage building adjacent to his house. We were stacking and sorting canned goods for a food drive he was preparing, and two young African-American men came to the door where David was standing, and he stepped outside to talk to them. Afterwards, I asked him about them. And he said they grew up in the neighborhood, and he used to fix their bikes. And since they had heard David had been sick, they had just stopped by that day to check on him. This past week, I emailed him and asked him to tell me more of the story. And this is what he wrote back. 
It's a little long, so I did some editing for length, but these are David's own words. The two boys who stopped by while you were here are Chuck and Doogie. Their grandmother, deceased, lived diagonally behind my house, and the boys, two sisters, mom, and her boyfriend live in the other, lived in the other house on that same property. I met the boys and their family shortly after I bought this house in 2012. The youngest sister would have been about three, the two boys about five and eight, and the older sister about ten. They initially came over because they were interested in observing and feeding the goats grass that they had picked. It wasn't long before they started bringing their bikes over when they would get a flat tire or have other problems with them. Through several years, I bought and used several hundred tire patch kits, bought a battery-powered air pump so I wouldn't have to hand pump up the tubes, new tires, and some other bike specialty tools. During the process, the boys especially picked up quickly that they needed to hold the bike steady while I took the tire off and back on, and before long, they were using the wrenches themselves as I observed. Then they started using the air pump and knew how much air the tire would have so it, wasn't be, wouldn't, so it wasn't low or overinflated. They never quite got the full concept of patching the tube, and it was always sad for me when I had to tell them this tube had too many patches to repair. This tire is too worn, or worse yet, their handlebars wouldn't stay tight because they had jumped the ramp too, one too many times and landed with their full weight on the handlebars. Sometimes they would come over a few weeks later with a new inner tube their parents had found enough money for. Other times they would show up with a whole new bike wheel or a set of handlebars or other assorted parts. One year, a group of volunteers saw just how many times a week the boys and other neighborhood children stopped by to have their bikes repaired. They went to the shop and bought a large supply of patch kits, new inner tubes, and tires. I didn't offer these new materials casually. I knew if word got out that I had new tubes and tires, everyone would want one, even if there was life left in their tubes or tires. It was only after we had exhausted the maximum number of patches on a tube, and I knew they wouldn't be able to get another. When the repair was completed with a new patch or a tire, they were ecstatic. You and Conrad assisted in taking some of the remaining new tires and patches as well as what was left of my beat-up fleet of bikes I tried to keep for volunteers to the community bike shop while you were here, Rhubarb, which stands for Rusted Up Beyond All Recognition Bikes. <laughs> of course, you don't have this many bike breakdowns without a few crashes, so I spent some time cleaning and patching up scraped arms and legs. In addition to bike repairs, the boys knew where they could get some healthy snacks. I remember seeing Doogie run down the street holding an orange high above his head as if in victory. The sad part is I knew that may have been the only healthy thing he had to eat all day. No one ever asked me for candy. It was always oranges or apples. Sometimes we had to ensure that the bounty of two pieces of fruit was equally divided among six or eight children. One thing I'll always remember is one day I went to vote when the boy's grandmother had called out to me from across the parking lot. She had a stern voice and did not appreciate her neighborhood becoming more culturally diverse. When I heard her voice, I thought, what is she upset about now? Had I not already been looking in her direction, I may have acted like I didn't hear her. I walked toward her and said, yes. She started, I want you to know, here it comes, I appreciate what you do for my grandchildren. I want the best for them, she said, but I can't do the things you do for them, and I appreciate that. 
Here in New Orleans, if someone says they appreciate you, that is the highest form of compliment you can get. It really takes on a much greater meaning than I've heard anywhere else. And now this lady, this neighbor, I know has a dislike for me, tells me she appreciates me. As the group of children grew older, I didn't see them as often. Another group comes on occasion to visit the animals and borrow the air pump, but no extensive repairs anymore. Then about three years ago, Chuck, Doogie, and James, about their age, came to the door. They stood there in an awkward moment of silence, and they kind of shuffled their feet around. I asked, is there something you want or need today? Chuck said, we heard you had cancer, likely from neighborhood talk, and we just wanted to see if you are okay. I said, I'm doing okay. Then they went on their way. It wasn't an extended conversation, almost as if just seeing me standing at the door was adequate. The day you were working next door, David concluded, when Chuck and Doogie stopped, it was once again a brief check to see if I was okay, but perhaps also a nonverbal, who are these two new guys? Let's go see for ourselves. Strangers to friends, right? By way of being neighbors. Watching each other, watching out for each other, seeing each other, helping each other, caring for each other. And who are my neighbors? Today we answer that question this way by asking Jesus, When did we see you, Lord? Hungry for a microwaved hamburger, imprisoned without laughter, a stranger with a bike pump, sick from cancer? When did we see you? And Jesus answers, When you saw each other, that's when you saw me. When you helped each other, that's when you helped me. When you granted each one their full humanity, that's when you discovered the holy. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Amen.